This morning's scripture is taken from 2 Corinthians 5, uh, four, 5, verse 14 through chapter 6, verse 2. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once recorded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Denise. This morning, I invite you to keep your Bible open to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are focusing on the last half of that chapter. And the heart of what we see in this chapter is the, the topic of reconciliation. And so we are going to devote our time thinking about the ministry of reconciliation. That's what Paul calls it. He says this is a ministry of reconciliation. And he refers to reconciliation five times. Right in the middle of this paragraph, he repeats that word five times. So this is, this is big on his mind, and this is important, and, and that's what we want to lean into. So before we look at the text, um, would you just pray with me? Father, Steve is right. You are good, and you are glorious, and you are wonderful. And Lord, I, I thank you for the sweet assurance that you are at work among us. Your word tells us that you are at work among your people. And Lord, by your spirit and by your grace, we have experienced your work. And Lord, I know there is much work to be done. We are very, very imperfect people. And yet you continue to be patient with us. We are very, very undeserving people. And yet you continue to be merciful to us. And Lord, I pray that you would continue with your patience and your kindness, which we have sung about, and your mercy. Would you, by your grace, continue to shape us into the image of Christ? And Lord, if there is anyone listening to my voice who does not yet know you and has not experienced the reality and the sweetness and the goodness of having the Holy Spirit dwell within us, then let today be that day when your spirit is active and you transform hearts, when you make disciples, Lord, from 
taking us from seeking and serving after ourselves to serving our Savior, Lord Jesus. Would you do that today? And Lord, I also ask that you would work in our hearts to bring us peace, bring peace to families, bring peace to marriages, bring peace to friends, bring peace to coworkers. God, bring peace to our homes, bring peace to our church, bring peace to our town, our city, and our country. Jesus, you are the Prince of Peace. Without you, there is no peace. And so I ask, would you magnify yourself through your word and through our lives so that we can know the goodness of communion, sweet communion with you, Lord Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen. We as elders have considered that the topic of reconciliation is something we should spend some time thinking about together because I don't know about you, but it's been a hard couple years. The last couple years have been exceedingly difficult. We have seen families wounded, um, close friendships fractured, uh, people have been hurt. Uh, we've wound up seeing divisions and strifes in outside inside and everywhere around us. And we thought it might be wise for us to sit and consider uh, the topic and the ministry of reconciliation. And I just wonder, how many of you have experienced a, a hard couple years? Anybody? So we have a need for the Lord to do a work. And that's what we yearn to see happen. And there's no place in Scripture that focuses on the topic of reconciliation more than in 2 Corinthians 5. And so that's what we're focusing in on. I'm just going to read the three verses that, that zero in on this the most. It's 18 to 20. So 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. Just one more time to get it before us. And what I'm going to do is sort of walk us through this passage to see what's here in the text and then go back at the end and try to apply it. So we're going to walk through and look at some principles because the definition Paul's going to give for reconciliation is probably not the one you would give. So his is focused on the work of Christ. And so we need to understand what is true reconciliation? What's the greatest relationship that needs to be reconciled before we get to thinking about other relationships that need to be reconciled? So verse 18, 2 Corinthians 5. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciles us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You hear that word again and again in Paul's mind? He's, he's thinking about re reconciliation. He's meditating on it. And he starts out by saying, all of this is from God. God is the one who does this. The reconciliation Paul's talking about is the work of God through Christ, he says. 
What has God has done something through Christ, and what he has done is he has reconciled us, group of people, to himself. So God takes reconciliation personal, and he has reconciled us to himself through Christ and, and made us in a relationship that no longer is hostile. There's no longer the animosity. And he has done this by not counting trespasses against us. Not counting offenses. Trespasses is willingly crossing the line. You know what it is and you do it anyway. Just bull ahead. We're forgiven of those kinds of things. Forgiveness is at the heart of reconciliation. And then Paul calls this a ministry of reconciliation. And the root word for ministry is diakonon, which is the word we get our deacon from, which is a service. So this is an ongoing ministry that needs to happen in the church. So Paul's talking about something that proceeds and grows and flowers. And so let me offer a definition of reconciliation based upon what we have seen. It is a divine act of God who through the death and the resurrection of Jesus has appeased and removed his holy and just anger toward the sin of man and thereby restored friendly relationships with those who have believed in the Lord. Do you ever think of yourself being in a friendly relationship with the creator of this universe? What do, what do you do with friends? If you're in a friendly relationship with someone, what happens? Cup of coffee? We spend time, we talk about the things that are important to us. We, we fellowship with each other, we spend time together. All of those things describe the relationship God has done and effected to us, his children, through Christ by not counting our trespasses against us. So that's the heart of what we're after. Now, as we meditate on this, Paul, I, I want to go back and sort of spread out and get a little bit more of the context because that provides a little bit greater foundation for understanding all that reconciliation entails. So in verse 18, when I first read that, Paul begins by saying, all of this is from God. Well, what is all of this? refers back to what he has just said. All of this, from the beginning of uh, verse 18 upward, uh, Paul's thinking about something that has flowed into this talk about reconciliation. And when you go back and you look at the first half of chapter 5, what Paul's talking about is the tension that results from living in a broken world. He talks about the difficulty of being embodied people in a world, in a universe that is cursed. And we need to be reminded of this. This world is under a curse. There is no global neutrality. There's only global hostility. Because from the day that Adam and Eve sinned, this world has been in hostile tension and anger against its creator. And he cursed this world because of that sin. And so Paul uses words like, our bodies will be destroyed in verse 1 of chapter 5. Today we groan. Our bodies groan physically and emotionally, spiritually. He says in verse 4, we are heavily burdened and we need to be lifted up. He said today we're faced with this mortality. We, we experience death all around us. And yet the kingdom of God has broken in. So he says, have hope. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Be of good courage is what he says. So in the middle of the chaos, Paul is saying, I'm pointing you to Jesus, to what he has done. And so that 
idea of reconciliation is wrapped up into what Jesus has done. So we're going to walk through this just a little bit. So verses 14 to 15, the first thing to see about reconciliation is that it is grounded and it begins in love. Reconciliation begins with love. And so Paul says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for the sake, who for their sake died and was raised. Paul begins by, when he begins to think about reconciliation, it's shaped by love. And he says, the love of Christ has been manifested to us. And so let love control you. Love controls me. He says, it controls what I do with my life. It controls my preaching. And that love emanates from one thing. He says, Jesus died. One has died for all. And so all have died. What he's saying is Jesus has died and paid the sins paid for the sins of those who would put their faith in him. Don't go down the route of universalism here in the one dying for all because there are some who would say, ah, it says Jesus died for all. So everybody's going to get into heaven. Well, you would have to ignore everything else that Paul has written in the beginning of this letter because in chapter 5, verse 10, he says, Know this, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due, what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. If there's no punishment for evil, there's no worrying. If we're all going to end up in the same place, then there's no need for me to even preach. Right? We're wasting our time. Let's go get lunch. Because there's nothing to do. But that's not true. Universalism is a lie. It's a twisting of, of what we see in Scripture. And so Paul says, in one in dying for all, and so all have died, he is saying, the death of Jesus is so effective in the lives of those who believe in him, it is as if they died too. So one, one consequence of that is, your sins have been paid for. The sins of those who have put your faith in Jesus have been atoned for. All of my sins, Todd Craven's sins, were paid for at the cross of Christ when Jesus died. All of them. My sins are covered. Jesus paid for that. So Paul says he died and so it is as if we died with him. He actually atoned for our sins. He didn't do that for everybody. Because if he did, nobody would be in hell. Hell is not unpopulated. And so that is a reality we have to face. Jesus died in a particular way to atone for the sins of those who trust in him. And he died to free us from living for ourselves, is also what Paul says. That, that's a love manifested, freeing you from the debt of your sin, love freeing you from being controlled by your own emotions, your own sinful desires. When you are in Christ, you're free from that. Sinful desires no longer dominate you if you are in Christ. Are they there? Yes. Are they loud? Yes. Are they controlling? No. They may feel like it, but they're not. The Lord Jesus sets us free from the dominion of sin. And he did that because of love. And he also, in his death, assured, not only do we have our debts paid for, but we get credited to us the active righteousness of Christ. So uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus 
died for us in paying for our sins, but he was raised for us also to achieve righteousness. So 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God, he made him to be sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, Jesus was sinless, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see that? God credited to Christ, who didn't have any, un, any sin, he credited to him our sin so that Christ's righteousness then could be credited to us who have no righteousness. What a wonderful, glorious truth. And that happened because of love, is what Paul is saying. The love of Christ has been manifested in these ways. And we all memorize John 3.16, Right? Say it with me. For God so loved the world. Do you know what the so means? It doesn't mean how much. It doesn't mean he so loved you. It means in this way. God so loved the world, meaning God in this way, he loved the world. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life and would never perish. That's the way in which God demonstrates his love is through the death of Christ. And so the first point Reconciliation begins in love. It's grounded in the love of Christ. And secondly, in verses 16 and 17, the ministry of reconciliation advances in hope. Ministry of reconciliation advances in hope. You won't even attempt reconciliation if there's no hope. And our primary problem has to do with God. So verses 16 to 17. From now on, Paul says, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. What he's saying is, if we've been reconciled to God through Christ, then he is saying, when you're no longer merely fleshly. Something supernatural has happened in your life. If you're in Christ, something amazing has begun. The new creation has entered your world. So today, I don't know if you know it or not, but today's Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday, what happened at Pentecost? Everybody got real excited about what Jesus has done. Jesus poured his spirit into the hearts of his people and a, a fire began to grow in his people that spread throughout the world. That's what happened on Pentecost Sunday. Jesus put himself in his people. That's what receiving the Holy Spirit means is the spirit of God comes to dwell within us. And Paul is saying, we're not merely human anymore. He said, I used to think about Jesus as merely human way. I used to think he was just a guy. He was a false Messiah. He's not a real Messiah. And yet, I don't regard Jesus like that anymore. Merely fleshly. I regard Jesus now as the Messiah, the Son of God, who initiates the new creation. So reconciliation is founded upon the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost Sunday, in the life of his people, changing. Do you see that? Look at verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, what? He is a new creation. The new creation has begun. You're not in Christ if nothing changed about you when you became a believer. You don't have the Holy Spirit if there's no transformation. If there's no evidence of any change in your life after you say you became a Christian, I don't know that you have any biblical basis to think you are one. Because the Holy Spirit begins to change. It might be slow. 
It might be gradual work, but the Holy Spirit changes. He moves. He conforms us into the image of Christ. So there ought to be differences. And this is what reconciliation is founded on. Everything old has passed away. New things have come. So there's a change that is happening. And so Jesus suddenly is not just a fictional character in history. He's suddenly radiantly beautiful and gloriously divine and wonderfully sweet because he is our savior. Reconciliation moves in hope. There is the hope that something will change. That's what Paul is saying here. And then uh, number three, reconciliation or the ministry of reconciliation is defined by forgiveness. At the very heart is this forgiveness. Already read these verses, but I'll read them one more time. Verse 18, all of this is from God, this transformation, this new creation, this, this beginning, this love that's manifested. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself by not counting their trespasses against them and then entrusting to them the ministry of its reconciliation. God is the initiator of this reconciliation. Reconciliation primarily has to do with our relationship to God first. That's what we see. It is a divine action of God where he reconciles us to himself by not counting trespasses against us. Meaning he, he overlooks your offenses. It doesn't mean he completely he didn't sweep them under the cosmic rug. He actually paid for them in Jesus' death. So God is not unjust. He justly applies the penalty of death to all of our sins, except Jesus carried it so that we can live and be free. So here we see this, this wonderful forgiveness. The heart of reconciliation is forgiveness. We see that. And then fourth, we see also that the ministry of reconciliation is a partnership between God and man. We're both working together in this. We're ambassadors. So uh, 20, uh, 520. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We, we represent him. God is in us making his appeal through us. You see that? God is in us making his appeal through us. And so we implore you, we beg, we entreat, we plead with you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. That's the first thing you need to consider today as you're here. Are you have you been reconciled to God? Before we ever talk about any kind of reconciliation with one another, we need to ask the question, are we reconciled with God? How is it between you and God today? Is it okay? Are you reconciled? Do you know if you stood before him today, you'd be okay? That's the first and most important question. Before we ever have a conversation about why you poked me in the eye or I stepped on your toes, we need to talk about, have, are you okay with your creator? That's the primary concern. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And verse 1 in chapter 6, working together with him then, we appeal uh, to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So we're working together. We're, reconciliation is the work of God effected through human agency. God is involved in our lives working together. So first question, most primary question, I don't leave today without knowing that you're reconciled to God. You can know this. You can know that your sins are forgiven. 
you can know that your sins are washed away. You can know that if you get hit by a bus today and you go and stand before Jesus, he will say, welcome home. You can know that without any question. As long as you believe the word of God. That's the first and most important question. But I know when you're thinking about reconciliation, you're probably thinking about between us. That's only of secondary importance. It's not unimportant, but it's of secondary importance from Paul's perspective. So now let's turn the page. If you've got what Paul is saying here, reconciliation has to do primarily between you and God the Father. If that's taken care of, now let's talk about relationships with one another. For Paul didn't make this notion up of reconciliation. He got it from Jesus. When you go into the New Testament, you study reconciliation, the first place you'll find it is on the lips of Jesus in Matthew 5, 23 to 24. So let's read that together. Jesus commanded reconciliation. He says, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's astonishing to me because what he is saying is it is okay to interrupt your rhythm of, of, of weekly worship in order to be sure that you're okay with your brother. I, I don't need your offering, says the Lord. I'm not impoverished. What I need for you to do is make sure that you're right with your brother. So leave it and go. Evidently, corporate reconciliation is vastly more important to Jesus than private worship. Because he says, push pause and go make sure that you're right. So evidently, us not being in fellowship with one another affects our worship and fellowship with the Lord. So Jesus instructs us to prioritize it. So we're going to serve communion in just a little while. If, if this is something that the Lord is speaking to you, don't go through the ritual yet. Go first and have a conversation and, and make sure you're okay. And we'll talk about what is re reconciliation? What does this mean? Right? Jesus goes on and he says, who, who should initiate this? If you're asking, because sometimes we, everybody in this room probably has somebody you're ticked off at. Probably. Your mother, your brother, your third cousin on your aunt's side who never talks to you and never invites you to Christmas. We, we've probably got somebody with whom we think of. You're probably thinking, what does he know about me? I don't know anything about you except you're human and we all have broken relationships. Every one of us. And so here, who should initiate this? Because you're probably waiting for so-and-so. Well, if he comes to me, I'll say I'm sorry. And Jesus says, you go to him. You go to him first. So who, who should initiate you when you realize there's a problem? And what is reconciliation? It's when friendly relationships are no longer possible. It's when peaceable and amicable intercourse between two people is no longer possible. You, you, you say, I can't be in the same room with them. I don't want to be on the same planet with them. I, that's a problem. And so reconciliation, you initiate it when you realize there's a problem. And Jesus tells us how to do this in Matthew chapter 18. He says this, he gives us a three-step process in Matthew chapter 18. Most of us probably know this, but I think we need to be reminded because we never do it. He says this, if your brother sins against you, Matthew 18, 15, go and tell him his fault uh, between you and him alone. 
If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector or an unbeliever. So what does Jesus say? He gives us three steps. First of all, you go, he says, in private, in person, which means you don't go to Twitter, you don't go to Facebook, you don't uh, go to your neighbor and start talking, you go in person, in private. I think Jesus meant exactly what he said. Some people have criticized me for saying, you mean I need to go in person and talk to him? Yes, I think so. I don't think a text message works. I don't think, uh, you know, saying something on Twitter to the whole world works. I don't think it works. You need to have an in-person conversation in private and try to work it out. And I'm convinced 90% of all church problems would go away if that happened. But we don't. We go to somebody else first and it gets messy. And Jesus says, if that doesn't work, in private, in person doesn't work, then get a friend or two friends and go again in private alone and have a conversation about what the problem is. If he listens to you, great. Problem solved. If that doesn't work, get a couple others. I'm, now we're on step two. If, if a couple others don't work, then tell it to the whole church. Invite the whole church into this mess. And if that solves the problem, then that's great. If it doesn't, then he's probably an unbeliever. So that's the step. There's three steps. Person, in person, in private. And getting a friend or two to go with you in private again. And then taking it to a public uh, setting in the church. So this, is for, this is for Christians. This is not for the world. This is for believers. So when we have been reconciled, we, we are good. But what happens when we don't? Right? That's our problem. When things aren't solved, we tend to hang on to anger. Jesus points this out in Matthew 5 when he talks about uh, how to leave your, at your altar and go and get things right. He talks about it in the context of anger and he says, don't cling to your anger. And we, some of us make beds for our anger and we cling to it. That festers and grows into bitterness. And here's what Paul says about that. It's, you know, it's not a sin to be angry, right? God is angry towards sinners every day. Psalm 7 and 11 tells us. And being angry is not sin, but if you, if you hang on to it and you stay in that posture, that's when it leads to sin. So Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Meaning you can get mad, yes, but deal with it quickly. Don't let it fester. Don't cling to it. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And Elisa and I made a promise when we got married, we would never go to bed mad. Because I've seen unresolved anger destroy marriages. Dealing with, refusing to deal with issues has destroyed marriages. And so before we got married, like, I don't want to lose you. So can we please promise to each other, we not go to bed angry? And she said, yes. I can't tell you how many late nights we have stayed up talking until we can finally be at peace. It, it's been a long time since that happened, but early in our relationship, it happened. I plead with you, don't cling to your anger because Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 12 says, if you cling to anger and harbor it in your heart, it, it festers into bitterness and that bitterness overflows and it defiles many people. 
because you can't keep your ticked off idea to yourself. You're going to talk about it because we want justification and we're going to tell the world what some offense that somebody did to us. Many people get defiled by that clinging to the bitterness. So how do you know if you need reconciliation? Well, if you see somebody coming and you turn and go the opposite direction, you probably, had, you probably need to initiate reconciliation. If, if you bump into them at Stop and Shop and your blood pressure goes up through the roof, you probably need to initiate reconciliation. If you find yourself rejoicing that the stock market is going down because you know his retirement plan is diminishing, you probably need to initiate reconciliation. And one, I want to share one helpful verse for me because Jesus, what did Jesus say? Jesus is teaching, you know, Jesus, everything he taught, he got from the Old Testament. There's a wonderful verse in, guess what book? Leviticus, that was exceedingly helpful to me in dealing with tension in relationships. And it's Leviticus 19, 16 to 18. I commend to you having a Bible reading plan because sometimes God even speaks through Leviticus. I was in a very tense relationship with a, a coworker at one point in my life and I'm trying to figure out what to do, pulling my hair out. And uh, I read this verse. Verse 16 says, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And how many of us do that? When you get ticked off at somebody, you tell somebody, don't you? You're, do you know what she did? Do you know what he did? Did, did you hear what he said about me? We, we just, that's what we do. When we're angry, do not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. That's what happens when bitterness and is, is not dealt with. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. That sentence stunned me. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor. What is he saying? Speak the truth. Go to him in person, in private, and talk about it. Reason frankly with whatever the issue is. Talk it out. Have a conversation. Don't bottle it in. But reason, reason, not angrily shout. Reason frankly with your neighbor. Let it, because if you don't, it's going to lead to sin. And then you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. Did you know it's a sin to bear a grudge? You shall not bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is where Jesus got Matthew 5, Matthew 18. Go and talk to your neighbor in person, in private, work it out, bring a friend for help if you need it, and don't let hatred bitterness or grudges take root in your soul. And so let me conclude with a couple of pieces of advice as we think about reconciliation. Let love control you. Let love control you. As you think about, do I need to have a conversation with, with someone? Let love control you. Do you love someone enough to speak the truth? Because whoever, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly thinking about the church now. This is relationships within the church. If we're Christians, if we're believers, whoever we have found who has offended us, Jesus has paid for their sins. So it's not up to us to inflict vengeance or make that person suffer for what they have done to us. Jesus has atoned for the sin. So we need to let love guide our thinking and our reasoning. And secondly, 
Don't regard anyone as merely human. When, when Paul says, don't regard, I don't regard you as merely human, he is saying, I understand now the spirit of Christ is dwelling within you and miracles happen when you obey what God says because he's at work in all of us. The Spirit of God is at work in every one of us, and miracles do happen. So yesterday, there was a graduation party that I, I went to for a little while, and I bumped into someone who I had um, about three years ago or so been invited into a, a, a mediation situation. And there were two families, the kids happened to go to school together, and the families wound up offending each other, and it was so bad that they couldn't work it out, they couldn't be at peace with each other, and the tension was spilling over and affecting lots of other relationships. So a school official invited me to sit as a mediator between these two families and work this out, because they've tried the first couple steps, it didn't work. Tried together, couldn't get it figured out. Tried in larger settings, couldn't get it resolved. And so I sat with them, we talked it out, we prayed, and I, didn't, I never got around because of COVID because of the, to find out what the solution was. So I asked this person, I said, can you just give me an update on how is it with you and, and this other family? And she said to me, a miracle happened in that room. My heart softened, his heart softened. And I can say, we are fully reconciled. Now we're not best friends anymore, but, when he got sick, I took him some soup. Miracles can happen. I, I think sometimes we don't go to others and talk it out because we think we know what the result will be. And I say you have too much confidence in yourself because you don't know what the result will be if the Spirit of God is at work in a situation. It can get worked out. And sometimes the very act of talking brings healing. The very act of admitting the offense brings a softening. And the third piece of advice, there won't be any reconciliation if you can't forgive. You sometimes just have to forgive. Just like we have been forgiven, you too must just forgive. And let it go. Say, I entrust it to Jesus. Acknowledge the hurt and then grant release. That's what forgiveness is. If your debt, your school loans are forgiven, what does that mean? No obligation to repay. That's what forgiveness is. The obligation is removed. And sometimes that is a great work, but it's necessary. We were just on family vacation a couple weeks ago and we had a little family meeting sit down on the beach because four of us had wound up offending one of us unintentionally and we had to have a conversation about it. The offense was very deep. We had no idea. And yet it was there. And so all we could do, we couldn't go back and unwind history and fix it. I wish we could. If anybody's got a time machine, I'll take it. But yet we couldn't. All we could say was, we are, we are sorry. We are deeply, deeply sorry. Will you forgive us? Sometimes that's all you can do. And for the offended person, that sounds like that's not enough. I want more than a, I'm sorry. I want more than a, please forgive me. On this side of heaven, I don't know that that's ever going to get solved. 
Because if Jesus has atoned, in some moments it's going to be up to him to simply heal the heart and forgive the wound. And he supplies the grace in the very next verse to do it. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Chapter 6, verse 1. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Grace must be present in reconciliation. Grace must be given. Full atonement will never be achieved here on this planet. So what do we do? How do we, how do we conclude? Verse 2 of chapter 6 says this. In a favorable time, I have listened to you and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. That's the words of Yahweh. In a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I helped you. That's the words of the living God. If you ask for help, he will help you. If you ask for salvation, he gives it. And so behold, now is the favorable time Behold, now is the day of, t- of salvation. So two points as I conclude. Are you right? Are you reconciled with God? Is it good between you and your creator? Is salvation present in your life through the presence of the spirit? Are you reconciled to God the father? And if not, then ask for salvation. He will grant it. Ask that your sins not be counted against you and he will grant it. And secondly, Ask for the help to figure out to whom you may need to go and initiate reconciliation. If, if I'm, I'm going to give you a moment just to pray about it. Because that's the second question here is, do you need help in discerning that? Right? Not everybody on the planet. If you go back and you've got a long list of offenses, you're going to have, you know, next 15 years trying to make phone calls and get everything put right. But what do we need to do in order to be at peace with one another? That's the question. What do we need to be at peace with, with each other? Get to that point. You don't have to be in complete agreement. Probably never will be. But can we can be at peace together? Can we understand each other and be at peace? That's what we need to strive for in reconciliation. So I want to give you a moment and I ask you, would you just bow with me before the Lord? He's here with us. He is present. And if you're in the first case of not being sure about the salvation of your soul, then I I invite you to remember the words of scripture which say, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever asks for forgiveness of sins in true repentance and, and to receive the Holy Spirit, God will forgive and he will give the gift of his Holy Spirit to you. If that's you, Ask him right now. Ask him to give you his Holy Spirit. In just in the quietness of your own soul, he hears your thoughts. Just ask him for forgiveness. And ask him for the gift of his Holy Spirit. Ask him to atone for your sins and apply the blood of Jesus to your life in humble repentance. And then secondly, if, if, this, if you're good with the Lord, I want you to ask him the question, Lord, is there anyone with whom I need to initiate reconciliation? And if so, write their name down and make a plan for it.
Lord Jesus, you have entered into this broken world. You have taken upon you the curse of our sin. And you have atoned for the sins of every person who put their faith and trust in you. Lord, I pray that we would walk in that grace. Let us who are your children be agents of that grace. Let us be ministers of reconciliation. Let us be a people of peace. Would you apply to your people grace? Fill us with grace. Father, grant healing. Would you please, through the transforming work of your spirit, heal relationships right now, Holy Spirit. Husbands and wives who are not at peace together, please grant peace. Co-workers and employers who are not at peace together, grant peace. High school friends, college friends who cannot be in the same room together, please grant peace, Lord Jesus. Grant us reconciliation. And we need your help, Lord. It is a process where you are present in us working out that reconciliation as we talk it through and give us the grace to be obedient. We have faith and hope in you that you can do these things. This wonderful, miraculous work of sanctification can happen. Miracles can happen. And I pray, Lord Jesus, you would bless your people with miracles of peace and reconciliation. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, knowing that for you this is not impossible and you can do all things. Amen.